Well, we sung two psalms about uh, the city of Zion and the house of the Lord, one celebrating its glory as uh, the place where God dwells in the midst of his people, and then this last one, Psalm 79, bemoaning its destruction, which was uh, uh, an anticipation of the coming day of the Lord uh, when the Lord uh, sent judgment on his people as a result of their covenant uh, unfaithfulness. And um, these are all, again, repeated themes in the Old Testament and the prophets, and they're relevant to what we'll be reading today in our text in Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. And when I began, I think early in my preaching here in Matthew, and I'm sure other preachers have made the point that Matthew typically uh, is understood to be organized around five great discourses of our Lord Jesus. Some have suggested that that was a conscious attempt to to parallel uh, the five books of Moses, the books of the law. I don't know that we can be sure about that, but I think it's pretty obvious that that Matthew organized uh, his gospel around these five great discourses, beginning with the Sermon on the Mount, and today we begin the final uh, of the five discourses, often called the Olivet Discourse, because Jesus delivered it to his disciples uh, on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is opposite where the temple was, and they had left the temple, they'd gone across the Kidron uh, Brook and gone up on the Mount of Olives and were looking across at Jerusalem, particularly right in front of the temple, uh, when our Lord gave this teaching. Remember last time uh, we saw the conclusion of his public ministry, and uh, these two chapters uh, constitute a private ministry to his disciples. The whole section deals with what's called eschatology, or the last things, chapter 24, uh, focusing on the signs of the end, and chapter 25, three parables, eschatological parables, uh, applying uh, these truths. So with that little bit of general introduction, uh, I'm going to read our text beginning in Matthew 24, 1, and going through verse 14. Brothers and sisters, hear the word of God. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone should be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because of lawlessness, And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. 
I will multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. That was the Lord's promise to Eve and to all of her daughters after she ate the forbidden fruit. And many of you can attest from personal experience how true it is. And many of us can attest from observing our wives' personal experience how true it is. In pain, you bring forth children. Now, as we've already seen from uh, Isaiah 13, that is an image of birth pangs. It's used often in the Old Testament. 26:17, Isaiah 26:17. Again, like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she's near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. And our Lord himself uses this image here in our text when he answers his disciples' questions. The sign of, they ask him for the sign of the coming of his age. In verse 8, he says, all of these are but the beginning of sorrows. The word that's translated here in the New King James, sorrows, literally in the Greek, is birth pangs. These are the beginning of the birth pangs. Now, birth pangs anticipate and facilitate a very important event. And they also, by definition, are very, well, painful. And typically, they also begin uh, slowly and increase as the event draws, draws closer, the birth draws closer, they increase in their frequency and their intensity. And I think it's helpful to have that in mind as we look this morning at what our Savior says the very first part, the introductory part of this Olivet Discourse. I've got five points for you this morning, brothers and sisters. The first one is this. The disciples' praise of the temple prompts Jesus to predict its utter destruction. The disciples' praise of the temple prompts our Lord Jesus to predict its utter destruction. Destruction As Jesus and the disciples left the temple for the last time, and it's interesting, some commentators connect this, um, Haggai 2.9, as they had just come back from exile uh, with Ezra and were just beginning to rebuild the temple, they'd laid the cornerstone, and some of the people shouted for joy and others wept who were old enough to remember the glory of the original temple. In contrast, the Lord had said, the glory of this temple is going to be greater than the former glory of Solomon's temple. And that was true in perhaps in various ways, but especially in the sense that the Lord himself, one greater than Solomon, one greater than the temple, would come there in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. In, the, in Ezekiel's prophecy, a significant uh, thing occurs where, where the glory of the Lord, Ezekiel sees a vision. He's with the exiles in Babylon prophesying about what's about to happen back in Jerusalem. He sees a vision of the glory of the Lord departing and going and resting on the Mount of Olives. Some commentators make a parallel to that. Our Lord Jesus departing the temple for the last time and going to the Mount of Olives. In any event, that's where he is. Some think that the, the disciples' question may have been prompted by what our Lord said earlier in, in the previous chapter, verse 38. He's, he's uh, bemoaning, uh, lamenting Jerusalem's coming destruction, and he says, your house is left to you desolate. And some think that because of that comment, the disciples were particularly uh, commenting on the temple. In any event, it says they left the temple, and as they were going away, his disciples came to point to him the buildings of the temple. 
Mark says it this way, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The temple was a complex, a huge complex with a number of buildings, the temple proper with the, the holy place and the most holy, the holy of holies, with a number of other buildings, and they remark on the glory of the whole thing. Luke includes, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was ordained with noble stones and offerings. And brothers and sisters, at the time of our Lord's life and ministry, the temple in Jerusalem, Herod's temple, was one of the most magnificent buildings in the world. It was made with massive stone blocks, some 40 feet by 12 by 12, ornamented with gold. Wealthy people had given gold. There are gold plaques and statues. Herod himself had, given, had uh, donated a great golden grapevine with clusters of grapes six feet high. And the eastern wall... The buildings themselves were made out of white marble. The eastern wall was covered with gold. The, the, the eastern wall that faced where the sun came up. So as the sun rose, that sun was reflected from the gold wall. It was a magnificent structure. And they point that out to our Lord. And his response to that is to predict that it would soon be utterly destroyed. You see all these, do you not, said Jesus? Truly, I say to you, there will not be here left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And brothers and sisters, that prediction was fulfilled roughly 40 years later. We don't know exactly what year this was, around 30 A.D. And in 70 A.D., Titus and his Roman legions uh, took Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. There's debate about whether Titus intended that or not, whether he wanted to protect it, and his soldiers got out of hand. But they lit huge bonfires that caused the, so hot the stones crumbled. They sifted through those to get to all the gold. They wanted all the gold that was in this temple, and they th threw them all down into a valley. And what's left today, the Wailing Wall, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you've seen pictures or heard of it, is really not part of the temple proper. It's just part of the, 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 the foundation wall. The temple, the whole magnificent structure, just as our Lord said, was torn down and every, every stone thrown down. And I think this suggests a couple of practical things by way of application, brothers and sisters. The first, it underscores the fact and the nature of predictive prophecy. Jesus' prophecy and that of other Old Testament and even New Testament prophets. In this case, this prophecy was literally and straightforwardly fulfilled relatively quickly. Some other prophecies, many perhaps, were not fulfilled nearly as quickly. Some hundreds of years, even thousands of years. And some were straightforward like this and others are not. Uh, much of prophecy is, is cryptic in the way that it's given. The language is metaphorical. You can think of the book of Revelation, which draws on Old Testament prophets, lots of different metaphors. And we've talked about before the idea of prophetic foreshortening, that the prophets uh, often didn't uh, separate very clearly different things that they saw, just like as you look at a, a range of mountains and you can see the peaks, you're not always sure where one mountain starts or the other uh, ends. And I think we have that even here in this discourse, some prophetic uh, foreshortening that combines uh, the destruction of Jerusalem with things that will happen later all the way to the end. But the point is, God himself can and does, in his word, reveal the future, varying ways, varying times. A second application 
I think this teaches us that the true glory of a place of worship does not consist in its outward adornment. The true glory of a place of worship does not consist in its outward adornment. Remember what Jesus had just preached about in, in chapter 23, how far gone Israel was as a result of the, the, the teaching, the spiritual leadership of the scribes and the Pharisees, and the Sadducees were different, but they really weren't better. You could argue they were worse in some ways. And yet they have this glorious temple, and then he bemoans at the end of 23, Oh, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a hen would gather, and you would not. And as a result, that's what Psalm 79 was about that we sang a few minutes ago, your house is left desolate. The true glory of a church, brother and sister, now don't misunderstand, I don't think it's wrong to have a church building. Some say that's not right. I don't think that's wrong. I don't think it's wrong to, to decorate it tastefully. But we have to be wise and careful that that's not the main. The true glory of a church is the truth of God in its pulpit and the grace of God in the hearts of the congregation. And where you have that, and by God's grace, I think you have it here to a significant degree, then that's the true adornment. Uh, which, for which we should be grateful, where worship is offered in spirit and truth. And then one final application. Uh, at this point, Jesus' prediction and its fulfillment illustrates the fragility and the vanity of all worldly glory. That beautiful marble, that magnificent strong marble, the gold, And yet, gone. And brothers and sisters, all the glory of this world is ultimately vain and fragile. And so we dare not build our lives upon that, seeking it. You know, fame, wealth, power, popularity, uh, the number of followers you have on Twitter, Instagram, you know, however you want to measure these things. That's not where real security is. Matthew Henry says the most beautiful body will be shortly worm's meat and the most beautiful building a ruinous heap. And it's just the part of wisdom for us to remember that and to order our lives on the things that really are solid, lasting, and eternal. 1 John 2, 15, 16, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So, this whole body of teaching here, the Olivet Discourse, begins when Jesus, in response to his disciples' awe at the temple, predicts its utter devastation. And Jesus' prediction leads to something else. This is our second point this morning. Jesus' prediction prompted a question from his disciples regarding the timing, the sign of his coming, and the end of the age. Jesus' prediction prompted a question from his disciples concerning the timing, the sign of his coming, and the end of the age. And again, it's important, brothers and sisters, the Jews did not just admire the temple they venerated the temple I think again it had associations 
going back to David and Solomon, obviously this wasn't the same temple, but David was the one who envisioned and initiated. Solomon built it. It was glorious in his time and had been rebuilt. They venerated it. Some argued that the world could not last if the temple were destroyed. And so with that, that, that degree of veneration, you can imagine when our Lord gives this prophecy, these stones are going to be thrown down, every one of them. It made a real impact. It got their attention. And so they asked several questions. This is verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, again, opposite, right opposite the temple, looking at it, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age? They lumped all these things together. Several questions. When is this going to happen? Is it going to happen very quickly or not? The sign, they assumed that there would be at least a sign connected with this. The sign of your coming, and the word here, the Greek word is parousia. Uh, perhaps you have heard that before. It's a significant word, and it's a word that means the arrival or the presence, and it's often used of a king or another dignitary who comes in public state and glory. It's not the, not the idea of somebody coming in obscurity and humility, but somebody coming in great pomp and circumstance, when will be the sign of your coming in that way <clears throat> and the end of the age? It's interesting, in these 14 verses, that little expression, the end, is used four times. That's why I entitled this Signs of the End. It's interesting, back in Luke 19, Luke says, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And so he told the parable about the man who went to seek a kingdom and was gone for a long time and entrusted servants uh, with various things that they should steward in his absence. Because he knew the disciples and many others had the impression that the king, kingdom was going to come immediately and that parable was intended to alert them that that would not be the case. And they, the disciples, apparently assumed wrongly that the temple's destruction might necessarily involve Jesus coming at the end of the age right away, and some other sign must attend it. And again, brothers and sisters, prophecy is real. God is the author of history, and he's the one who makes it happen. He unfolds it. He can, and he does reveal it in his word. But that revelation and the history itself, the plan of God as it works out in, in time, happens progressively in stages. The revelation of it is progressive in stages and the actual working out of it in history is progressive in stages. And we have to be grateful on the one hand for prophecy because it can be a basis for great comfort and great hope to see the end and to know that no matter how difficult things are for the church, for us individually, to know the glorious end to which all things are heading for the children of God. So we should be profoundly grateful, but we also have to be careful because it is a challenging uh, part of God's revelation. It's easy if we're not careful to jump to hasty and wrong conclusions. It's interesting, our Lord himself will insist five times that God has not revealed the exact time of his coming. Uh, three of those in this chapter, 2436, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. 
Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. 2442, therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. 2444, therefore you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. 2513, watch therefore, you know neither the day nor the hour. And then in Acts, after our Lord has, has been raised and meets with his disciples in Acts chapter 1, they say, Lord, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says in Acts 1, 7, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed on his own authority. You remain here till you're clothed with power on high, and once that happens, you get busy being my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But our Lord repeatedly says, in terms at least of the specific time, with respect to the fact of his coming, we know beyond any doubt. But with respect to exactly when, we don't. And that's part of the wisdom of God, I think, brothers and sisters. Jesus makes that point in one of his parables. You know, the, the, the unfaithful servants who, because they assume it's a long time before the master comes, uh, waste their time and abuse their fellow servants and so on. It, there's wisdom in our knowing that it will happen but not knowing exactly when. So, in his response to uh, his prediction about the temple, the disciples ask him for a sign about his coming at the end of the age and he responds. This is our third point. Jesus answered his disciples' questions by describing various signs which he calls the beginning of the birth pangs. Verse 8, all these things are but the beginning of the sorrows, literally the birth pains. Jesus answered his disciples' question by describing various signs which he calls, quote, the beginnings of the birth pains. And essentially what he says is this, there will be much suffering in the world generally. And he mentions several specific things spiritual imposters and deceivers. In verse 4, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, not just a few, many, saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Not just a few. Many will be led astray. So one of the signs of the times, one of the things of these times generally, and I think it's between the destruction of the temple and Jesus' return is uh, spiritual imposters and deceivers. A second thing he mentions is what I'm calling national disasters. National disasters. Verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Verse 7, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. National disasters of various kinds as nations compete literally uh, on the field of battle and in other ways. Thirdly, he mentions natural disasters. Verse 7b, there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. Various kinds of natural disasters. And yet, again, our Lord invokes the idea of birth pangs to suggest that those things in themselves aren't evidence that the end is imminent. He says in verse 6, see that you're not alarmed or troubled, for this must take place, 
But the end is not yet. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, it seems clear from uh, sources like Josephus and Tacitus that a lot of these things occurred in connection with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. The Bar Kokhba rebellion from 66 that climaxed in Jerusalem's destruction, the death of a million Jews. It was a horrific time. And there's evidence that a lot of these things, false Christ, people claiming to be the Messiah, false messiahs. And uh, again, uh, the nations clashing militarily and, and various natural disasters. And as a result of that, some have suggested that the whole passage deals with the destruction of Jerusalem. That view is called preterism. It's a word that refers to the past and suggests that it's all been fulfilled in the past. I personally don't think that's the case. I think there's a sense in which the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple was, in a sense, the end. It was the final curtain descending on the Old Testament. When the temple was destroyed, the whole Levitical system was done away. No more sacrifices, no more priesthood. And I think the Lord, after 40 years of unbelief, when his lamb had come, when the ultimate Passover sacrifice had been offered, and he'd been raised, and, and his resurrection had been preached, and, and, and so on, after 40 years of persisting to, to refuse that, I think the Lord said, enough is enough. And as we saw in Psalm 79, as he did with Solomon's temple, he destroyed that temple. And I think, in a sense, it was the end of that age, the final end of the Old Testament, and I think it's an anticipation, a type and a picture of what the climactic final is going to be like. But I don't think that that was the whole thing. But Jesus goes on to say, in addition to these, uh, these sufferings that involve the whole world, the church, believers, will experience some suffering in a special way, intense and widespread persecution. Verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And of course, the book of Acts and early church history, and ever since, including today, Catherine gave me a copy of the New Horizons magazine. I think you said there are three articles in there about the persecuted church. I've, I've, heard, I've heard it asserted that more people died for the sake of Christ in the 20th century uh, than ever before. So persecution uh, was a reality, and it's continued to be, and our Lord said that would be the case. Widespread apostasy. Verse 10, and many will, King James says, be offended. Um, the ESV says fall away. The Greek means literally cause to stumble. And it seems to be a picture of professing believers who depart and don't continue to hold the faith. And they'll betray one another and hate one another. Again, that might be open to discussion, but that's what seems to me to be a reference here. And that happens in persecution, uh, that some believers apostatize and they go away. Thirdly, widespread false teachers and teaching. We've heard it earlier, many will come and claim to be Christ. Verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Brad in his prayer referred to people being deceived not just by worldly ideas, but for churches that have apostatized. And so within the church, within the body, false prophets and false teachers. And then the last thing he mentions in verse 12, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. 
Now that word lawlessness means literally no law. And there's debate about what that means, but as I looked at various definitions, one says to live with complete disregard for the laws or regulations of a society. Not just the law of God, but of a society. More and more uh, just um, anarchy. And it says as a result of that, the love of many will grow cold. I think it's a description of moral and social chaos. And one of the results is the destruction of the family. Love relationships, the normal love relationships being destroyed. And the bottom line, brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus does not give in his answer to the disciples any warrant for the church of the world to expect a golden era in history. Some periods have been relatively more peaceful than others. There was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, which by, uh, you know, around the Mediterranean for a while because of the uh, dominance of Rome maintained relative peace. Um, you know, some of us thought after the Cold War ended that we had uh, a brief period of peace, and I guess we did, but the point is uh, all of those periods of relative peace have been brief, and other places wars are going on, if not, not in the Roman world, in other places. The war to end all wars, that's what they call World War I, and 21 years later, World War II began. So Jesus, I don't think, gives us any reason to expect uh, a golden era, but that the, the reality of sin and our fallenness will continue to be experienced. And the analogy of birth pangs may suggest that as the end gets closer, they will intensify, become more intense and more frequent. And we've certainly got that potential now, don't we, with nuclear weapons. I mean, all it would take, one wrong move. Again, he talks about the persistent reality and danger of false teachers. Matthew Henry says, seducers are more dangerous enemies to the church than persecutors. Satan acts most mischievously when he appears as an angel of light. The color of the greatest good is often the cover of the greatest evil. And so again, we talked about that in chapter 23 where our Lord denounces their false teaching, the false teachers and their false teaching. And then again, I think you could argue the growth of these things, uh, persecution, lawlessness, um, you know, again, I don't, I don't try to keep stats on natural disasters, earthquakes, volcanoes, and all that sort of thing, but we know they certainly continue in our own day. Our Lord doesn't stress in what he says novelty. He doesn't suggest so far in what he said you should expect something new. He stresses continuity and implies maybe greater intensity. So our Lord responds to his disciples' questions not with a sign, but with a group of them, ongoing and perhaps intensifying pain and trouble for the world generally and for the church specifically until the end. But that's not all. It brings us to our fourth point. In the light of these birth pains, Jesus gives his disciples three important exhortations. In the light of these birth pains... Jesus gives his disciples three important exhortations. The first one is 
this. Be spiritually alert and discerning. Stay spiritually alert and discerning. Verse 4, see that no one leads you astray. He assumes it could happen. You could be led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Stay spiritually alert and discerning. And I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, that we all need to pray regularly for discernment, wisdom. We need to beware of and reject the spirit of this age, which says there is no fixed and objective truth. That's one of the great lies of our age. We all determine our own truth. That's a lie from the pit of hell. I'm okay, you're okay. No, neither of us is okay until by the grace of God we've been forgiven and transformed. And so we need to beware, and you young people, again, you need to beware the air that we breathe is filled with that idea. It's all relative. Nobody can say of anybody else, that's just wrong. It's sinful, it's wicked. Now we can never say that out of pride and self-righteousness, but we can say it because God says it. And so we have to be aware of that. We need to be Bereans. You remember what Acts 17.11 says about the Bereans? They were more noble-minded than the Jews in Thessalonica, for they received Paul's teaching with great eagerness. Their minds were open when Paul came, uh, Paul himself, a rabbi and a scholar, teaching the word, but it says they examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They, they were willing to listen to Paul's teaching, but then they took it and compared it with scripture, and as a result, it says, therefore, many of them believed. They saw, you know, it's really right. These prophecies about the Messiah, uh, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, uh, lots of other things. Testing everything against the touchstone of Scripture, including what I'm saying to you now. We need to continue to grow in our knowledge of the truth. And that's where we are blessed, brothers and sisters, to be the heirs of the Westminster Standards, just the whole Reformed tradition. But the Westminster Standards wonderfully um, draw together and distill so much of that in those several documents, the Confession and the Catechisms. They're not inspired scripture, but they wonderfully draw together the teaching of scripture. And so uh, we can, they can be very helpful to us in terms of drawing together the teaching of scripture on so many things. Seeking good teaching and good teachers. And as you pray for the pulpit search committee meeting this afternoon, I know, at least I'm confident, that that's at the top of their list. It's not the only thing on their list, but I know it's at the top of the list that your next pastor be a man who will teach you sound doctrine and embody it in his life as well. So that's the first exhortation. Be alert and discerning. Secondly, stay calm and do not panic. That's the second exhortation our Lord gives Stay calm and don't panic. In verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled or alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Even in the midst of all this turmoil, and I have to admit, I don't watch the news as much as I used to. 
uh, it, you know, it, I, I find it uh, troublesome and off-putting uh, rather than edifying. But our Lord says, as he's talking about these wars and rumors of wars, see that you're not troubled. See that you're not alarmed. Matthew Henry, again, there's need of constant care and watchfulness to keep trouble from the heart when there are wars abroad. And it is against the mind of Christ that his people should have troubled hearts even in troublous times. That's why I read... I think Psalm 56, there where David said, I trusted in you when I was afraid. That faith is the antidote to fear. And we need to practice and apply, brothers and sisters, John 14, 1. Be not troubled, neither let your hearts be afraid. As our Lord has just told his disciples what's about to happen to him, and he's going to leave them, he says, don't be troubled and don't let your hearts be afraid. And he gives them those three wonderful chapters of truth to encourage them and give them peace. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which keep your hearts, with the peace of God which passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ. The habit, whenever you find yourself really being anxious, that's a signal, it should be a signal, I need to be praying about this. And it may be that we're constantly, again and again, it would be nice, uh, Paul doesn't say, if we pray once, then that's the end of it. No, we may have to continue to do that. Cast all your anxieties upon him, says Peter, 1 Peter 5, 7, for he cares about you. Isaiah 26, 3, thou dost keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you. And one of the many problems we have in our day, including our education system, is no emphasis on disciplined thought. Happily, there are some exceptions to that, but uh, generally, uh, again, in, in uh, homeschooling, classical schooling, but uh, the tradition, the, the, the Western and Christian tradition, but more and more education doesn't stress the fact that, that we can and should discipline our thoughts, and that's what that verse says. We need to pray for our political and our church leaders, and I was grateful again. I know you do that regularly, and I think, again, that's biblical. Paul tells us to do that for their wisdom. <clears throat> we need to stay informed and be prepared but not obsess about it. Just be reasonable, okay? And then the third exhortation our Savior gives here is persevere and endure. Persevere and endure. Verse 13, having mentioned these trials of the world in general and the church more specifically, Jesus says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, the end, that could be the end of the age, if we happen to be uh, alive when that occurs, or the end of our own lives. But the point is, we are to believe and trust and keep believing and keep trusting and not fall away. And I don't think, I don't think Jesus means that we earn our salvation by enduring. The one who endures to the end will be saved. I think his point is our endurance is an evidence of the reality of grace and of faith and ultimately of election. So how do we do that? Romans 15.5 calls God the God who gives perseverance and endurance. That's who he is. He's the God who gives perseverance and endurance. Verse 4 says, through the perseverance and endurance of scriptures, you can have hope. Walking closely with this God, the God who gives perseverance and endurance. And 
reading, meditating upon, trusting his word. Another way is staying close to the brethren. Stay plugged in to the body of Christ. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. Two are better than one. For if one falls, the other will lift him up. But woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. Paul tells the church in Galatians 6, we're to bear one another's burdens. And so practically, staying plugged in to the body of Christ is one of the things that can help us endure. As we have brothers and sisters who pray for us and encourage us and often help us in other practical kinds of ways. Apply James 1, 2 through 7. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect, not lacking anything. Now, that, again, is a matter of disciplined thinking. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but when I encounter trials, and the worse the trials, <coughs> the, the less natural it is for me to feel joyful. But that's not what James says. He says, consider it all joy. It's a, a matter of a believing, disciplined mind. I, I know God is working through this. I, endurance is an important quality, and I need to cultivate it. He's using these trials. Lord, thank you. Help me to trust you and to persevere. And finally, and most importantly, keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12. Run with perseverance the race set before you, looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now sat down on the right hand of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So along with the birth pangs, Jesus includes some practical advice about dealing with them. And having done that, it brings us to our final point this morning. Jesus follows the birth pains with a very encouraging promise. Jesus follows the birth pains with a very encouraging promise. This is verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is as close as Jesus comes to giving us a definite sign of the end. Yet even that is not as definite as we might wish. Who or what are all the nations? We tend to think in political and geographical terms. The Greek word that's used here is the word from which we get our term ethnic. And it refers to a group of people who are ultimately related to each other, family. They, they have common descent and often have a common language and a common culture. So in one political geographical nation, you can have all kinds of nations in that sense. Lots of different kinds of people. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Panta ta ethne. All the peoples. And that makes the challenge, the, the task more challenging and more difficult to measure. I think it's probably true that the, the gospel has been preached already to virtually every geographical political entity on the, on the, on the planet now in some form or another. But has it gone to all the peoples? I think if it had, we wouldn't be here right now. 
I think the point is that we're closer now than ever in human history, and Jesus' words are a promise. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. doesn't say it's going to be believed in, but that it will be proclaimed. Acts testifies that the church has been working on this task since Jesus returned to heaven and poured out his spirit. In church history, there are periods of relative slackness and indifference and others of great energy and progress, but never has the church been as close to success as it is today. Paul uses language about the gospel bearing fruit in all the world. I think he was talking, again, in terms of the, 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 the known world, but it wasn't completely known. The gospel expanded remarkably considering all the limitations in the first century. But now, it's everywhere. Missiologists have, in, in recent decades, taken this about the peoples to heart, and they've done lots of studies identifying throughout the world the different people, and so the, the mission, missions can target these peoples that have yet to have the gospel preached to them in their own language. Technology, radio, television, the internet, satellite phones, computers to help translators. And many other countries, brothers and sisters, you know, many countries are not only evangelized, but now sending their own missionaries. And Bibles being printed, even in communist China. They limit it, but they print and distribute Bibles. So, again, we're not there yet, but we're in a wonderful place and making great progress. That's why um, you haven't asked, but I'll tell you, if you want to label me, I call myself an optimistic amillennialist. I don't, I don't believe there's a, a promise of a golden age. Uh, again, I think these things point to, to trials and troubles throughout. But I think this gives me reason for optimism. That in spite of all of that, the gospel is going to go forth and the church is going to be built. So, by way of application, how do you pray for missions when you pray? And I'm thankful that you all pray for missions. I know here on the Lord's Day in the pulpit, and I'm, I'm sure you're praying too. What promises do you claim when you pray? If you're not claiming, let me encourage you to add this, maybe put it at the top. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached. As a testimony to all the nations. It's a promise. And then the end will come. Let me give you a couple more. You may know these, but if not... 2 Thessalonians 3, 1, pray that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. That's what Paul tells the Thessalonians. Pray that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did with you. Matthew 9, 37 and 38, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Pray, ask the Lord of the harvest to thrust out laborers. Matthew 16, 18, B, on this stone, I believe the stone of Peter's confession, not Peter himself, but the truth that he confessed, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's a picture not of the church sealed up inside a city on the defense. It's a, church, it's a picture of the church on the offense battering the doors of hell and the, the, you know, the, the ultimate victory of the church. We'll claim that promise, I hope, uh, in your minds and hearts in just a few minutes when we pray the Lord's Prayer. 
I've determined not to forget it today. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. By giving financially, and again, maybe I'm preaching to the choir, but it doesn't hurt to be reminded. That's one way that we support missions. And considering where the Lord would have you go himself, I warn you, if you pray Matthew 9, 36 and 37, ask the Lord to thrust out labors in the harvest. Those are the last verses of chapter 9 and chapter 10 is where Jesus tells the disciples, okay, I'm going to send you out to preach now. And if you pray that, the Lord may say, okay, I want you to be part of the answer to this prayer. But maybe the Lord would have you in some way. And again, missions is a, is a, a huge uh, task and lots, room for lots of different gifts to contribute to it. Well, let me conclude by just reviewing our points here. His disciples' praise of the temple prompted Jesus to predict its utter destruction. His prediction prompted a question from them about the timing, the sign of his coming at the end of the age. Jesus answered his disciples' question by describing the beginnings of the birth pangs. In the light of these birth pangs, Jesus gave his disciples three important exhortations, and he follows the birth pains or pangs with a very encouraging promise. Brothers and sisters, this is a difficult and challenging time to be alive. Every day on the news and sometimes in our own experience, in our communities, our churches, our families, we experience something of these birth pains that Jesus spoke about to his disciples. But for the Christian, it's also an exciting and a wonderful time to be alive. Because we also see the Great Commission drawing closer and closer to fulfillment. And the time when our Lord will return and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And those birth pains will be forgotten and put away forever. We'll say goodbye forever to war, disaster, famine, and so on. Are you ready for that glorious new world? Do you have your passport to enter that world? It's written in the blood of Jesus Christ, and you receive it when you repent and trust in him as your Lord and Savior. If you don't have that passport, you're not ready, and make no mistake, the end is coming. The end and your end. And none of us knows exactly when. So if you've never done that, won't you do it today, and then you'll be ready whenever he comes to join the church in saying, Hallelujah, welcome Lord Jesus, Amen. Please stand for prayer.